This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16. Episode 20. This is Writing Excuses. Branching narratives. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm James. I'm Dan. I'm Cassandra. And I want to go left. (laughs) (laughs) So we're talking about uh, branching narratives this week, which is uh, a big part of the player choice we were talking about last time. Uh, Cass, where do we start with branching narratives? Branching narratives is, I think over the years, something I've learned to see as both almost a poem and a puzzle. It needs to be this elegant, very spare thing. But there's just so much thought that goes into it. And it is really what differentiates a role-playing game from, say, a traditional story, because branching allows the players to step into the narrative and make their own choices, kind of like those old classic choose-your-own-adventure games. But every time you give a player a choice, you're kind of splitting off into two different realities. And on paper, this doesn't sound too bad. Life is an infinite spread of possibilities after all. But if you're writing a game, you will not have a life if you follow that momentum. So every note and every binary decision, these can quickly multiply out of control. As such, you need to have certain things figured out, such as the ending where you plan to have people go, any early failures, and you need to kind of prune it to make sure it fits a kind of format that feels both dynamic and elegant and is still leading a player towards the information you need them to go. But if you do too much of it, players will notice that you're being, well, you're leading them along. Sorry, James. (laughs) Oh, no, I like, I'm, I'm with you. I think um, like what you said about printing branches, you always need to be bending those branches back toward the main story you want to tell. You know, you want to have things divide, but you want to think of it like uh, links in a chain, potentially, where characters make a choice and their paths diverge. Um, And you can totally see the hand gestures I'm making because podcasts are a very visual medium. (laughs) Um, But uh, (laughs) you diverge and then you bend those choices so they come back towards an intersection that I think of as like checkpoints, that let you keep the story on track. Um, So for instance, if you give the players the choice of talking to the witch or talking to the dragon, they can head off in those different directions. But you know, as the writer, that whatever they do in those two interactions, they're still going to get the quest to go find Bigfoot. And so then both of those points will, paths will converge again on, you know, Bigfoot's lair. And so now suddenly you've branched apart. People got to make a meaningful choice, but now they're back headed towards the direction you want to tell. Yeah, for my own part, it's been helpful. I I love the term uh, pruning that uh, (laughs) you used, Cass, um, because there are, at, at times, you have to prune and remove possible choices just in order to keep yourself sane. Other times, what you are pruning is choices that are no longer available because of a choice that the player has made. 
And then there's the decision, like with, you know, Bigfoot's cave, this is a thing I'm not going to prune. No matter what gets cut or chosen elsewhere, this piece of the tree remains because I need it. And often it's helpful when outlining these things to make decisions ahead of time as to which pieces you just can't prune and which pieces you'll be removing, you'll be swapping out. Or, you know, if they if they decide to, you know, kill off an NPC versus talking to them, um, you have the option to file the serial numbers off of that NPC and have them show them show up elsewhere. So the dialogue you've written, the uh, the clothing you've designed, whatever uh, those those uh, those assets can be reused. Uh, one thing that I want to uh, throw out really quick as a resource, if if it was very hard for me initially to get my head around how to write a branching narrative like this, and specifically how to outline one. Uh, until I realized that there are several websites that have mapped the full flowchart of all of the original Choose Your Own Adventure books. Huh. And you can what? Google those, what? and there are these beautiful little, just, you know, kind of line drawing, look like a subway map kind of things. And they really help you to wrap your head around this idea of how the story can branch apart and then checkpoint back together. Um, and, and it kind of helps visualize it in a way that helped me a lot. Yeah. I did not know that existed. I'm, I'm just like, the, the, <laughs> the effort it is taking me to not Google that right now is, <laughs> I want you to appreciate that I am not going down that branching narrative path. Well, okay. you know, I did Google it because I'm going to be told to include it in the liner notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think one trick that's important to remember for that is to, in the story that you're telling, tie the big story beats or big character beats or whatever that you want to make sure in there, you want to tie those to your checkpoints. And so uh, you want to make sure that if there's a crucial piece of character development, it doesn't happen on just one branch um, because mm-hmm. you want to make sure that, you know, mm-hmm. to tell a successful story, if you know you have to hit certain key plot points, uh, you have to make sure that they're at those points where all the paths sort of reconverge or else you need to do it separately in each of the paths, but doing it multiple times is expensive. I would also say that if you're insistent on, let's say, not sharing a narrative beat or like something important to the story at a certain checkpoint, uh, and like you want to keep it exclusive for one note, the other note should have information of equal value and consequence. Players hmm. don't necessarily mind it if they miss something, if they get something else in return. Yeah. Okay, let's pause here for our game of the week, which I believe is coming from Howard today. It is. Um, several years ago, I decided that I wanted to create a schlock mercenary role-playing game. And it's something that I'd been asked about for a decade and a half until that point. And so I sat down with Alan Barr and we created the Planet Mercenary role-playing game. We we looked at the possibilities of, uh, you know, licensing a game engine from someone else, uh, homebrewing our own, ended up going with homebrewing, um, because one of the things that I wanted to be able to do is create game mechanics 
that that gave characters gave characters that gave players the tools they needed to tell a story in the spirit of the schlock mercenary comic space opera. I wanted it to be funny. And so we created the mayhem deck and a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of fun materials so that, and you know, our goal was I want you to be able with your friends to play a schlock mercenary game and have it feel like I'm there telling jokes with you. That was a pretty high bar to clear. Um, I feel like we cleared it. Um, and of course I'm the authoritative source <laughs> here. Uh, Alan recently, uh, with, he went on to form gallant night games and has done lots of role-playing game, game design since has released the tiny planet mercenary rule set, which uses many of the same tools that we created, but is in the, uh, it's a much smaller format. Uh, and so there's Planet Mercenary and Tiny Planet Mercenary, which are both tabletop role-playing games in the Schlock Mercenary setting. Isn't it pronounced Tiny Planet Mercenary? <laughs> um, now it is. <laughs> and I think Alan might may request that soundbite <laughs> from us. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Howard. So I want to know, Cass, how do you make these narrative chains uh, fun? How do you make them fun and interesting? Um, there are a lot of different techniques. You Once you know the scope of what you're working with and how much you can play around with those dimensions, there are a bunch of weird little tricks. The simplest one being having branches within branches. When you're talking to the witch who will eventually lead you towards Bigfoot, there could be a whole subsection where you kind of coax her into discussing who she is, why is she there, and that can be a whole thing. Or this is something that showed up um, in one of the games that I wrote that unfortunately fell true because AAA is full of games that die without anyone ever knowing its name. <laughs> uh, I had a character there with prosthetic limbs. And there was always this option where you could ask him, hey, why do you have a prosthetic limb? And he would give you progressively sillier and sillier answers constantly, I think for about 50 or 60 loops. And finally, as you get to the end of it, he just goes, really, this is none of your business, dude, and just shuts off the entire dialogue chain, stopping you from repeating that whole thing again. And little tricks like that show up very often in video games to really build up a sense of this is a real person versus just an NPC that is regurgitating information for use. Um, has anyone else seen like interesting things in branching narrative design? Uh, I I have, but I actually wanted to pause to ask a question that I should have asked last episode. Uh, you used the phrase AAA games, and I realize I have I can extrapolate what that means, but I don't actually know. Oh, basically, games by companies like Ubisoft, Warner Brothers. Bioware, things that tend to involve 100, 200, 300, or in Ubisoft case, um, several thousand people in its productions, usually really, really high budget 
of a number that absolutely terrifies the crap out of me. Great. So it's a metaphor that is related to baseball, not to automobile repair. Yes. <laughs> or batteries. AAA games are the ones that can help you uh, <laughs> yes. get your car up the highway. <laughs> All games are physics simulation. (laughs) So uh, having never worked on a AAA game, uh, I want to throw out something that you can do that is cheap um, and that doesn't require a team of a thousand people, uh, which is um, conditionals and callbacks um, can be Hmm. a really great way to make things feel significant. And what I mean by that is when players make a choice, um, just putting some sort of little tag or reminder in there so that later on in the game, something can be different uh, depending on their choice. You know, so if you insult the witch in, you know, the first scene um, when you took that branch, uh, just having something towards the end of the game where you run into the witch again and she goes, and she clearly dislikes you because she remembers that you said that thing, that can be one line of dialogue, uh, but it suddenly makes the player feel like, oh, this is a real world with real consequences because a choice I made a long time ago is continuing to have ramifications. And it wasn't super expensive. It didn't lead to a whole new branch. It was just one thing that was tweaked. Similarly, if somebody picks up a different item or gains a different ability or even just has like you know a shifted NPC attitude, anything you can do that calls back to a decision a player made earlier feels like a reward even if they didn't get anything uh because you're you're reminding them like hey we're paying attention to what you're doing your choices matter yeah Yeah. one of the things that you see a lot in uh in big mmorpg titles is uh what, what my friend bob calls uh hat economy which is you can spend money to get hats to get costumes to get outfits to get whatever and these have no bearing on the story. They're just, this is how I want my character to look, and I've spent some money, so now I have a new costume. When you present a choice to a character, what they get needs to be more than just a hat. It can't Mm -hmm. just be, oh, I beat the game wearing red clothing. Oh, I beat the game wearing blue clothing. The choice has to matter. The best reward is always consequences. Um, I am curious if anyone else has, you know, tips and tricks and things they've learned from writing branching narratives. When I was working on, um, I did a, a the, the dialogue for, for Hidden Path, um, and it was a, a, a game called Brass Tactics, which is in VR. And the, the thing that for me that was interesting about it, because it was really the first time that I had attempted to do this was that I needed to be able to um, really create space for the player in that they could interpret one of the uh, the, the lines of dialogue that the, the NPC was delivering to them, that they could interpret it in multiple different ways depending on their own emotional state in that moment. Mm. And, um, and, and trying to figure out how to, to sculpt things that felt like they were uh, they inherently belonged to the character who was speaking them, knowing that an actor was going to imbue them with meaning, uh, but also then leaving enough space. Mm-hmm. So, like um, sometimes it would be something as simple as, "Oh, is that the choice you're making?" and and that 
that leaves room for the character, for the the listener, the the player to think, wait, does that mean that I shouldn't make this choice, or are they trying to fake me out? And it it's that's all about what the 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 player is bringing to it. But uh, whereas saying I wouldn't make that choice if I were you, that is that is not leaving space for the character for the for the 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 player to uh, bring their own interpretation to it. Yeah, going back to something uh, Dan had said in the previous episode about uh, incentivizing players to sort of go the directions you want them to go, um, I think it's important you can use things like objectives or item collection or other requirements to kind of maintain control of a story while still allowing uh, an apparent freedom of choice, that illusion of control. And what I mean by that is like, let's say you've got players that need to steal the crown jewels from a castle vault. Um, and you want to make sure, like, you've detailed the whole castle. That's the game. You want to make sure that people hit all those areas and don't just bypass it. So you could force them to go linearly where you say, okay, well, they'll go in through the tower window. They'll fight their way all the way down through the castle to the vault. And that way they'll hit everything along the way. But that's a very linear railroady sort of approach. A thing you could do instead is give them multiple options for how they break into the castle Maybe they sneak in through the moat. Maybe they sneak in through the gate. Maybe they go in through the tower. Um, but either way, if they somehow manage to get to the vault without going through all the castle stages, then when they get there, they discover, oh, you still need the key, which is up in the queen's chamber. So they're going to have to hit all those same uh, encounters you designed just from the other direction as they go back up to the top. And so you've still sort of forced them to go through all the things, the, the challenges you designed, but you've done it in a way that made them feel like it was their choice. Yeah, I was thinking as you, as you were talking that that access um, as, a, as a consequence is a way of controlling the, the direction of the narrative. Um, uh, Shadowpoint Observatory, which I'll talk about later, uh, and is one of those where uh, your, your reward for figuring something out um, is access to the next layer of the puzzle. And, and, and it, it also feels like they, they also managed to tie consequences to feeling like, oh no, I'm not going to get there. Uh, but you can, but, but there's multiple paths to get to that access point. This has been a really wonderful discussion, but I am going to cut it off here. Uh, thank you so much. We have some homework now. And I believe yes. it is Cass. Yes. I would like everyone to write their choose your own adventure story. You can use any of the multitude of free tools that are available on the internet right now, including Twine, Inkle, and probably a whole number of things that I don't know about because there are a lot of indie engines out there. Just check out the websites and see what it's like to make your own story. Great. That sounds good. All right. Well, this has been Writing Excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. This has been Writing Excuses. Your hosts for this episode were Cassandra Haw, Mary Robinette Kowal, James L. Sutter, Howard Taylor, and Dan Wells. The episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com slash writing excuses. 
If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.